welcome to The Pot of Gold. My name is Shay Russell. I am your host and joining me today is Nick Frappel, ABC Refineries Global Head of Institutional Markets. Nick, how are you, mate? Extremely well, thanks, Shay. It's a pretty different uh, setup we got uh, today, right? Absolutely. So we are coming to you live from the RIU in uh, Resources Roundup in Sydney. It is currently Tuesday, 3rd of May 2022. We're speaking at 10.26 a.m. Now, unfortunately, I don't think either of us had the good sense to look at the gold or silver price before we started today's podcast, but that's okay. We did a great recap last week on precious metal positioning. Today, I want to talk about your very pertinent presentation that you gave this morning to open this uh, this year's conference. First of all, Nick, let's talk about what your headline was, and then we're going to delve into it bit by bit. Sure. So the main thing I really talked about was going on from last year's bullish go- bullish dollar call and um, negative real rates call. Basically, try to look at how things are looking now. You know, we've had a really, really fantastic move in the broad dollar index. How's that moving? Is that a, is that coming to an end? Is momentum changing? What's that? You know, cycles. Talking about last the thirty nine month cycle for the dollar. Where are we at in that? We're about a third of the way through. Does that mean that momentum is, you know, going to peak soon? And what does that mean for gold? My take on it is, is that a lot of these indicators, um, the the dollar strength, the real yields, they're they're moving against gold at the moment. And we're seeing that reflected in the gold price, but they might actually run out of momentum in in uh, in H two, the second half of the year. So that was my broad brush take. Headwinds for gold now. Uh, a possibility for gold to benefit from all of those things traveling the other direction in the second half of the year. All right. So let's take it back. That was a really good summary of what we did. So let's Mm. dive into a little bit more. Let's touch on something that you said was um, one of the leading drivers of stagflation at the moment. And you were talking about the double whammy of what happened to supply chain issues. And this has been exacerbated by the war and the COVID zero policy in China that they're pursuing right now. Can you run us through what you were, um, what you meant by that when you got up on stage and talk about talked about that today? Yeah, sure. So if you look at last year when we kind of had this big reflation and the big reopening, um, what wasn't good was the uh, was the way that global supply chains had been really battered and in many cases, you know, quite badly broken. So having all of that, the big demand, big fiscal boost coming through when supply chains were really in not great shape, that started to lay the inflationary ground ground sort of work, if you like, that we see now. What made that worse, of course, is the war with Russia between, well, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That clearly has made things worse, particularly for things like um, agriculturals. So that's driving driving prices. Nat gas and um, and oil as well, because of sanctions and various, you know, uh, you know, shortages arising from that. Then on top of that, you've got zero COVID. Plunging top 40, 45 cities in China into various forms of lockdown is having all kinds of knock-on effects in terms of um, ship handling at ports and movements of goods within China. So that's given that supply chains hadn't really fully recovered in the post-COVID era, all of this stuff is only making it worse. 
All right. So that was um, – thank you very much for that. That was awesome. But now I want to move on to something that uh, – I, I, you know, I love dispelling myths and that's why I really enjoy our chat. Yeah. You were talking about what really drives the gold price. Yes. Now, a common um, assessment uh, – we hear from a lot of people, why isn't gold higher? And mm. People are looking at the geopolitical conflicts and they're, they're automatically assuming that gold should be skyrocketing higher. But you explained in your presentation quite succinctly mm. why – what are the real drivers of the gold price and why it isn't going higher now. Yeah. Can you please elaborate on why gold isn't moving higher right now, even though some people think it should be? Biggest single thing is the, and this is the most important driver if you look at it from a, as an explanatory variable, is real yields. And when we look at real yields, what we're looking at is the 10-year uh, Treasury inflation protected US dollar bond. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's easy to look up and find. Now, those real yields, they reached a low last year of minus one and a quarter percent. That was broadly good for gold. It was actually un unequivocally good for gold um, against the negative, you know, the move high in the dollar. That was one thing that was positive. Now, what's happened in the last, really since Q4 of last year, but massively so this year, is, is that the real yields, that 10-year bond yield, has broken out of the downtrend. It's shot higher. It's retraced about 50% of the um, the major down move since last year, and it's now actually positive. It's, uh, our point and figure chart said that it should go positive or indicated targets up to 16 basis points thereabouts. Now that the real yield is positive and that whole move, that whole sort of recovery, if you like, or I should say fall in the bond price recovery in the yield, now that as that played out, that's pretty hard for gold. And... One of the things I've looked at particularly and uh, one of the slides in, in today's presentation, I used a bunch of um, just very quick and easy regression slides on the dollar, uh, Brent, uh, crude that is, and on the, on the real yields, real yields being the most important of that trio. And last week, I superimposed a little crosshair, a little target of where the gold price was relative to each of those different factor, factor variables. All of them showed gold looking like a uh, an outlier. Not a huge outlier, but an overvalued outlier on the, on the upside. Since then, uh, from memory, um, given that gold has traded to 1850-something overnight, mm -hmm. gold has dropped about 100 bucks since then, roughly. Um, so if anything, gold has kind of corrected itself and moved towards all of those kind of expected, expected levels. Mm -hmm. um, now the question is, Will will real yields kind of top out at, at current levels? You know, just the low positives uh, between here and say twenty basis points. Uh, will the dollar make it much beyond? Hey, I've got to be honest. I haven't looked at where the dollar was <laughs> <laughs> since yesterday night. The, the conference bump in. Yeah. Um, but I think we're we're, at, we're around about one hundred and three. Will it struggle around here, one hundred and three, one hundred and four, and move lower? Um, will Brent move lower on the back of zero COVID policies and demand destruction at higher prices? We, we talked about Brent going higher before, but all of those things could play out, and that could be um, largely dollar, largely gold positive, apart from the Brent going lower. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So uh, one thing that we, you did touch, in, uh, touch on in your presentation, I think it would be mm. uh, good to have a talk about this, is net positioning in the US dollar. 
and why that led to your analysis of how the US dollar was actually going to go higher for a short term, but how you think some puff might be coming out or some steam might be coming out of that rally right now? Yeah, so when I was at the RIU May 2021, uh, with just seeing a turnaround in really, really, really negative net positioning for the DXY. Now, just for the sake of all of, the, all of you out there who might say, yeah, but people don't really trade the DXY. They trade all of the constituents. You're absolutely right, of course. But the point is, is I'm looking at it through a DXY lens to try and collapse all of those factors into, into one currency pair or broad an index. Um, so, you know, point taken if that's what you're thinking, but you have to kind of like look at it on a, like reduce things to a, um, a, a clear point, if you like. Anyway, so dollar index, DXY, net um, non-commercial positioning was just turned around from um, very low lows. Yep. And I, I'd noticed that every time that the uh, net positioning had gone down to this, sort of those kind of levels in the previous two decades, or maybe even three decades, that it was followed by a pretty substantial rally lasting about 12 to 18 months. So that wasn't the only reason why I thought the dollar was going to rally. There was the, the my primary reason was the yield uh, yield gap, which I felt was going to widen because I felt that America was going to be the first out of the gates in terms of economic growth. Net positioning kind of like was another log on that fire in terms of expecting higher. And then for the real voodoo, um, you know, a cycle analysis is always uh, interesting, and we were right at the low of the 39-month cycle. We were at the right at the trough of a 30, the 39-month cycle in the DXY. So putting all those three things together and the fact that we're just... Uh, here's a fourth thing. <laughs> the, fa <laughs> the fact that we just hit a major target on the downside on point and figure at 89, I think. That led me to think that the period subsequent to now was all going to be about dollar the dollar rallying, and it has been. The question is, is we've hit... We've just touched a really, really multi-year... Uh, uh, trendline resistance. Uh, we've played out some of these things. Now, going back to positioning, you're thinking, Nick, I asked you about positioning. Go back and to I, positioning. And I got four reasons <laughs> about positioning. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, the positioning in the last couple of, in the last month or so, looked like it was rolling over. I haven't been able to check the latest, so I'll just leave it at that because it could have pinged higher again. And I think it might have pinged higher again on the non-commercial net positioning. Um, but it had shown si signs of uh, questioning its momentum. So that's the, that's the essential point I made, along with 10 others. <laughs> <laughs> no, there were some uh, valid points in yeah. there. I do appreciate them. Now, next thing I want to talk about mm. is the little purple box in your chart. Now, everybody yes. listening, don't worry too much about the little purple box. If you do want to see Nick's charts, we're going to provide a link to his presentation today mm. in the show notes. Yeah. However, Nick, let's talk about that <clears throat> purple chart, uh, that little purple box, yeah. which you uh, overlaid on the gold price. I believe there was an Ichimoku cloud sneaking or lurking in the background on that one. Ah, actually, I've got a... It, and a fib retracement. It was. It was a bunch of fib retracements, and that was the key thing but it wasn't the gold price it was actually the have um, i just been caught not paying proper attention no no, this no that, that slide very that early. slide was a long was way away <laughs> yeah no that slide was a long way away but what it was was it was the real yields it was the 10 year oh, it was the real yields was it yeah. 10 years? yeah so that purple box was the gap between the the two fibo the really key fibo retracements uh well there are three in my world there's 0 0.382 0.5 and point, um, 0.618, whatever. And uh, and um, it was the gap between the 50 and the, I don't know, 61.8 or whatever. And um, 
and that's the area, very roughly speaking, where I would expect that unless real rates just go on a complete tear, that for the time being, certainly in the year 2022 or in this next few months, that's where I expect real rates to run out of momentum. And that kind of aligns as well with the daily point and figure and even the hourly point and figure targets. They don't really extend beyond the 60, uh, 61.8 FIB level. Okay, that is a perfect lead into sort. I think it's going to be sort of a double barrel question that I'm okay. going to ask you now. So you talked about how funds got in and out of gold mm. uh, around 19. Um, there were some great price targets yes. in there, and I'll let you elaborate on that. Yeah. But let's talk. Uh, uh, the addition to this, I want to add, mm. is the point and figure targets because you threw out you you threw out a gauntlet today. Like you put out some pretty bullish price targets for gold yeah. from your trusty point and figure analysis. Yes. So let's go through that. Well, and and, and if, if I can kind of toot my own horn from going back last year, I did say that gold had, despite having this kind of quite bearish element of the dollar, dollar rising being a drag on gold, uh, I mentioned that there's scope basis point and figure for a $300 US dollar rally in, in gold. Roughly speaking, from when I made that call, that took gold, that would have taken gold up to about 2000 US. So it wasn't quite aggressive enough. But when gold is at 1700 or whatever it was on that day, 2000 looks like a very long way away. Yep. As for 1400 if you're looking at it the other way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. No, actually, Nick, I'm really glad you did point that out yeah. um, because it was a fantastic call on the gold price. And you're right, it did look a very long, long way away this yeah. time last year. So what about targets this time? The, yes. The, so the targets this time, I came out, look, if you look at the essence of the conversation being about stagflation, mm. higher prices in the economy, lower or, 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 or stagnant growth, there's lots of pointers to that happening, and that is positive for gold. So although gold has backed away quite a lot since the March, uh, mid-March 2071 US dollar high, we're down at about 1860. We Actually, we printed about 1850 something overnight. So the price has come back in really, really big macro terms. The price has come back a long way. But if you accept that we're in a, entering or in a stagflationary environment with added geopolitical risk and that that is good for gold if, if bad for a lot of other things, then what are the targets? Well, there's a couple of things I mentioned. The first thing was that if you look at a really kind of conventional uh, you know, bar chart or a candle chart, you see a double top forming between August 2020 and uh, March 2022, 2075 US dollars followed by a top at 2071. If the stagflationary environment that supports gold sees us break through that level, then I see a measured target of around about 2,400 US dollars. Turning then to daily point and figure, we've got multiple targets on the upside still. They go up to, they, they go up to, uh, now where are we? About 2,300, 2,400, almost 2,500. They, they, it's a different optic for looking at price targets, but they're explicit targets, and they kind of support that double top theory. And there are multiple upside targets. So that's good. So, look, I don't want to lock you into a hard time frame mm. because we all know that's a bit of a fool's errand. Yeah. However, when you're talking about your P&F over the long term, throwing out 2,300, 2,400, nearly 2,500, yeah. tell me what sort of time frame um, was your analysis based on with that point and figure chart? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, that, I, to me, that would be very much a 2023 thing. What that's I know way sooner than I would have thought. Well, I mean, maybe I'm being a bit bold. But Ooh, <laughs> wow. Look, you said it here first and you heard it live and we can't edit this episode. 
Yeah, no, this is a non-editable episode. I've, I've, I've uh, you know, fallen through that particular cellar door. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I was going to me- mention about that. And, you know, of course, timing is horribly difficult. Uh, the first thing is those targets are valid so long as gold doesn't drop through the 2021 lows, yep. which is about 1670, 1660 odd, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're gold to drop that far, all of those upside targets get knocked out and disappear. The second thing is, is normally, normally when I look at um, any kind of target, particularly longer term targets where there are big kind of, you know, key key levels like the ones we've just talked about, what I normally do is I would look at um, an option pricer and I'd say, okay, um, let's choose one year or two years. Say one year because it's kind of like a time frame that people are more comfortable with, and I'd say, and I'd plug in the uh, the strike price. Let's say the target's twenty four hundred. I'd pl- I'd plug in twenty four hundred, and I would look at, I'd get the option pricer to run and solve for the what's called the delta of the option. The delta of the option has a kind of inverse property, if you like. It's actually also the probability of the gold price trading to that strike and higher. So if, it, if the delta is 0.25, I take that as a one in four chance of gold going to that strike or higher or lower if it's a downside target. And that's usually the way I try and frame it. So I say, okay, one year at, at this current spot price, say 1865, one year forward, this particular strike is telling you that this is the market implied probability of, that, of, the, of the gold going to that. And the one thing I'll say about that is that that is way better than me. I just guessed. I mean, I, I know where I guessed. I just said 2023, Shay. But actually, what's much better is when you're asking the option market, you're asking like a million people at once. Yeah. Okay, maybe not a million gold option traders, but there are lots of, of foreign exchange traders who are probably have gold um, hedges on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an awful lot of people in the world. There's a big crowd, and they are using those option markets. And that drives a certain amount of efficiency in those prices. And it's way better than just asking one guy, i.e. me, <laughs> the view. And it, cause it gives you like, it gives you a, a, a better, a better, it's like a, I always say it's like crowd, crowdsourcing your opinion because I'd rather find out what the option market in toto thinks about those probabilities. Well, I suppose to without having an emotional investment in it as well. Very they're looking, true. Yes, they're looking at it objectively. All right, Very so true. I've got three more questions before we run out of time today. Yes. So I do want to touch on um, Nat Gas. Now, yeah. and, and Nat Gas and its connection to a potential food shortage or a food crisis in certain parts of the world. You very gently leaned on this subject yeah, yeah, in yeah. your presentation. So can you uh, sort of uh, elaborate on what the high prices for nat gas are having and how you summarize that in your presentation. Yeah, sure. Um, it, look, it's, it's hard to know the, 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 the objective kind of outcome, but we already know that there are agricultural um, tightnesses arising from uh, disruption, say harvesting in Ukraine. I, I'm not sure exactly how heavily um, wheat and so on is, is disrupted and so on, but there are disruptions. We're aware of that. Um, there is very, very hot weather in India at the moment um, that is potentially disrupting uh, food food and agricultural output there. And then you've got this overlay where nat gas is a vital feed for the production of fertilizer. So that is that will affect the, the price, price of and potentially the use of fertilizer. 
um, on top of that, actually, quite apart from nat gas itself, you've got issues around distribution. So, and distribution to farmers and also farmers distributing back um, to ports. And I'm particularly talking about China here. So the issue there with nat gas is that you have a, um, a, an unintended and maybe unexpected effect outside the world of the softs community, the agricultural community, where you've got the high price of an energy resource feeding into higher prices of um, a, 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 factor ver a factor input, a factor for, for ag agriculture, a key one, uh, no, no fertilizer, um, you're in trouble. And you only have to look as far as Sri Lanka, which I think actually stopped fertilizer imports um, a little while ago in order to conserve hard currency. And that had an instant effect or a very, very soon knock-on effect on their own agricultural sector. So that was my point. The point, uh, the, the, the point, I guess, I was gently alluding to because, you know, it's a, how long is a piece of string is when, when agricultural prices, food prices rise, when there are food scarcities, um, one of the knock-on effects in some countries is political instability. So that was that was the point I was kind of alluding to, I guess. No, look, and it was a fantastic point. And I think here in Australia where our food supply chain is relatively secure, yeah. yes, it's impacted by natural events like bushfires and flooding and so, so forth. Yes. But it's, uh, it's easy to forget that other people can face food insecurity yes. uh, far more quickly than we can here in Australia. As I said, we're quite sheltered from that. Uh, a little bit of a leap here to my oh, next yeah. question. There's, there's, no, um, there's no linear progression here. Uh, you mentioned some very scary, scary numbers in your presentation about China's $2 trillion in debt yeah, yeah. Uh, and the impact this is having on both private and public debt in China. Now, I want you to sort of... Um, could you please summarise what you spoke about mm. uh, on the on the debt and the property? Oh, sorry, on the debt. Again, God, I wish we could edit this episode. <laughs> property debt. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, if I could get you to elaborate on how those two are, are putting increasing pressure on the Chinese property sector. Yeah. So so I quoted a figure that was came out last year from Nomura, the uh, Japanese investment bank, who estimate that total property related debt in China is five point two trillion US dollars um, you know and a 5.2 my yeah so Evergrande is one part of that today. ocean well these are such large numbers that it's actually you kind of have to check you, you know you yeah. have to sometimes remind yourself just how huge they are because it's they sound unreal so that I think just as a quick flyover of the points that, that are relevant here um, I think I said that um, roughly, of course, China's GDP is about 30%. Uh, Rogoff think, estimated that China's GDP is 29 to 30% property. Yep. Uh, I think about 60% of bank loans, which are assets, are collateralized by property, various property assets. Um, about half of all China's fixed asset investment has been driven by movements or driven by activity in property, uh, both commercial and private. Uh, commercial and, and, and dwelling. And there's another stat out there, but I think, um, again, was it, would I say that 60% of, uh, uh, 60%, yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm at risk of repeating myself, but the point is, is that when property bubbles and, you know, valuation-wise, China looks expensive, when property markets subside, they don't always have to cause a problem but they will cause a problem if the banking sector is 
um, interlinked with what's going on in property. And I think it's no doubt about it that China's banking sector is inex uh, undoubtedly um, interlinked with the fortunes of the property market, either through lending, mortgage lending, and to lending to um, all the very, very many, some very huge uh, pro property developers. So my take is is that an unwind of the deleveraging, which is what this common, the central uh, party wants and has been trying to aim for as delicately as they can with some, you know, some knocks and you know cuts and bruises on the way because you can't avoid them when there's big big leveraging. That deleveraging process poses a potentially very large systemic risk to China's banking system. All right, so I've got one more question before we get to our key takeaways of today's conversation. Then we're going to let you desperately have a glass of water because it's been <laughs> a very big morning for you. Um, all right, so the RBA is meeting today. Now, yeah. initially, we had hoped to have an outcome. We had hoped to be recording after 2.30 p.m. when the RBA make their announcement yeah. of when rates going to rise. Now, of course, Australia's a very tiny economy and nowhere else out, outside of Australia cares what the central bank does. Mm. But tell me, Nick, uh, last week you did mention that you didn't think the RBA were going to raise or that May was too soon. It's probably only been about five days since we had that conversation. Yeah. What do you think, given the chatter in the market, do you have any sort of um, theory on what the RBA might do this afternoon? I actually think I, I think that it's quite likely they would raise. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of pressure on them to raise. Um, I was polled last week and I chose June because I, I don't feel I know nearly enough about the RBA and perhaps even the domestic economy to be that sure. So I thought rather than jumping in with both feet and saying, yeah, May, yep. I just I played it safe and said June. Um, but that wasn't to say that I didn't think it would be May. It was just more that I, I at, at the last moment, I felt conservative. Um, <laughs> you know, a year ago, I was thinking that it would be in 2023 and maybe uh, late 22. Now it's happened faster than I anticipated, faster than probably most people anticipated. And I guess the takeaway for that is that when things turn, they can turn quite powerfully and quite quickly. Um, you know, that, that's, uh, that, that's probably, you know, <laughs> you spend a long time thinking, oh, I think the RBA could tighten in 2023. And the RBA is saying 2025, and you keep on saying 23, 25. Suddenly, it's May 22, or could be May 22. <laughs> and it did. They, they rolled over very quickly on that one, didn't they? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's because because the direction of travel, the pivot, the pivot is happening. Um, okay, so look, I did say that was one last question. I think I mm. accidentally, you know, you said a very, you gave me a very clever answer, and I just want to extrapolate on that. Yeah. Um, is the RBA starting the hiking cycle? going to benefit? Is that going to have any impact on Australia's increasing inflation pressures? I think Australia's inflation pressures are not as bad as they are in, in the US, um, partly because the US has got, you know, gone full tilt, huge fiscal, huge fiscal um, uh, push to deal with COVID and also a massive, um, very, very, very easy monetary policy for, for, for many years. Um, went with you know vast amounts of QE and so on, and a very and zero interest rate policy and all the rest of it. Um, so I, I, hmm, okay. I suspect that they will be able to keep on top of things. 
Okay, that's a, you know, the coin landed that side up. <laughs> Look, we're not, it's not written in stone. It's we not written in stone. Um, the other thing as well is, more importantly to me, is what is going to happen to Australian assets when the RBA progressively tightens. And there's a lot of indebted Australians out there, and there's a lot of very floaty-looking valuations in property markets. And I don't think that anyone's ever worried about that until quite recently and i think that the the center of balance has shifted it is shifting now and it will shift probably more than people expected it to shift as recently as six months ago all right nick we will come uh we'll have a chat in the second half of the year once the rba has made some decisive moves we need to wrap our podcast up today however first of all let's touch on our or last of all i should say let's touch on our key takeaways from today i think my key takeaway from Mm. our chat today and i guess your presentation was your very bullish gold targets and the sooner than expected time frame um i really hope we come back in a year and get to have this conversation again and we can see if that trusty pnf has um has turned out correct once again. Yes. Um, also, actually, I do have a second takeaway, and I think this is touching on the stagflationary pressures yes. that are building in the global place. Um, they're getting too big to ignore, and I really like that you did draw attention to them today. Yeah. Uh, however, what is your key takeaway from today's conversation for everybody listening? I think the, the key thing was that it looked weird last week, and perhaps even the weeks prior, when you looked at where gold was relative to its kind of longer run relationships with the driving variables such as um, real yields and the dollar uh, and to some extent with Brent. And so it was almost um, a relief to see that those kind of like outlier areas where gold gold looked like quite significantly highly valued relative to real yields. So the fact that it's moved quite decisively down to 1860 kind of validates that validates that relationship, that inverse relationship. My second take is that, look, you know, stagflation should equal higher gold prices. I, I've been caught in a pincer movement. Is that of, our norm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that guy with the bell is quite insistent. Um, Continue, so, sorry so, to uh, so, yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, predicting price and time, almost impossible. But I've blundered into saying 2023. <laughs> no. uh, and then, you know, I'm, not, I'm always going to tell you what the daily, when I say daily, that to, that's translation for very long term point in figure. I normally use hourly for predictions within the coming six months. So that gives you an idea of how long term a daily chart is. Yeah. I, I'm only telling you what that chart tells you so long as the price of gold remains above 1665. Yep. Uh, look, I really do love that you put the. Uh, the caveat in there, but yeah. that's okay. We all understand that gold is susceptible to yes. market forces. Nick, we do need to wrap up. I love that instead of a gnome with a hammer, we have a gnome with a bell. Yeah. I did not see that coming. Uh, Nick, this has been an incredible fly-by-the-seat-of-our-pants conversation here at the RIU Resources Conference in Sydney. Yeah. Uh, Nick, thank you very much for thank chatting you. to me it's in the gone booth. much better than... Uh Given the tiny area and uh, the fact that you have to bring all of this gear up from Melbourne, it's gone extremely well. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, it was, a, it was a bit of a heavy bag to lug around. Um, now, also, too, for everybody listening, mm. do make sure you check the show notes so you can see the charts that Nick has referenced in today's mm. conversation. Uh, as well, I do believe that they have recorded your presentation. Yeah. So I will, through the wonders of the internet, find a link to the presentation you did give at RIU this morning as you were not just a keynote, sp- a keynote speaker but the opening speaker here at the RIU. Yes. And it would be great if everybody could see that wonderful presentation because you covered a whole bunch of things in there that we actually didn't get the chance to cover today. So, Nick, once again, thanks for being here and it's good to see you face-to-face. You too. Cheers, Shay. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to get a better understanding of the technical indicator Nick uses, the Ichimoku Cloud. It's available on most trading platforms. Alternatively, you can check the show notes over at abcrefinery.com forward slash podcast. Here you can sign up to receive more information from Nick Frappel, including his monthly report where he incorporates technical analysis alongside macro market commentary. That's all from us today at ABC Refinery. We look forward to 